0: While they're doing that, if you would uh, take your Bibles, if you would, uh, and open up to Acts uh, chapter 21. We are going to continue our series uh, through the book of Acts, and uh, we are in 21 uh, verses uh, 1 through 16. So let's just uh, follow along as, as we read the word of God uh, together. And when we had parted from them and, and set sail, we came by a straight course to cost. And the next day to Rhodes and from there to Petara and having found a ship to the Phoenicia, we sailed aboard uh, and sa- we, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come to, in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed uh, to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought uh, out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit we were telling Paul not to go uh, to they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days uh, there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. They all uh, they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach. We prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, uh, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. The next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied while they were stay, uh, while we were staying f- for many days, a prophet named Agabus Uh, came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Uh, When he heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he could not, he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of um, Mason of Cyprus, uh, an early disciple with whom we should lodge, let's pray this morning as we get started. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. We have just read your holy and inerrant word that uh, Lord, we ask, Lord, that your spirit would be at work, that you would give me the words to say this morning that the passage would be clear, that we would understand how it applies to our lives, that we would respond with a heart of faith and a heart of, of obedience. That we would trust you in all things and that we would be ready and willing uh, to do what is necessary for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of your lords. And it's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. Today is, of course, the the anniversary of, of September 11th. And uh, many of us uh, remember exactly. Uh, where we were on that day 15 years ago, how we, we first found out. What's strange is more and more kids now don't even, weren't even alive, uh, when that happened. But it's such a, a thing that stands out in our mind. It's crystal, crystallized. And you'll probably remember the first responders that ran in there on that day. They were willing (laughs) To do whatever it takes to fulfill their mission. Going in there that morning was not just a job for them. Oh, I'm a firefighter. Oh, I'm a police officer. It was a mission. There was such camaraderie among those men. And even those who lost their lives, you saw it in the days that followed the camaraderie that they had from other firefighters and police officers. Not only in New York City, but around the country. These are people that have a calling in their lives to lay down their life. It wasn't just a job. It was a mission. And they were willing to do what it takes. Paul being a missionary, it wasn't just a job. He was willing to do what it takes. He's willing to lay down his life. He says, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Those firefighters and first responders and police officers were willing to lay down their lives for the name of the New York City. For the people that were in that building, for the sake of their country. How much more? Should we as Christians be to be willing and ready to do what it takes to suffer for the name of Jesus, even being willing to lay down our lives because of who Jesus is, the Lord who rules over all things. So we want to ask you this morning, what would I do? For the name of Jesus, what would I do for the name of Jesus? Paul is so convinced that Jesus is Lord. He is ready and willing to die on behalf of the Lord Jesus. If only we, myself included, had that kind of zeal and passion in our day, that we had this unction inside of us, that we grasped all that it meant that Jesus is Lord and we will do what it takes in his name. The Christian is one who confesses that Jesus is Lord, and that confession transforms us. It brings the saving grace of God, but it it works transformation in our lives so that we are not who we used to be. We are a new creation in him. Our first point this morning is simply this. Follow the Lord, but know that it is hard. Follow the Lord, but know that it is not always smooth and easy and comfortable to do the right things, the things that he has called us to do. To be saved, you you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. You profess faith in him. You repent of your sins. You You turn to him and he has a call upon your life. Philippians chapter one, verse twenty nine says this, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul is saying this, that that faith is a gift from God. Why is it that you came to saving faith? Because God opened your eyes and the Holy Spirit put that gift there. He granted it to you so that you might respond and believe. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him. Paul, Paul takes it for granted. Of course, we know faith is a gift. But also suffer for his sake. The Christian is called to saving faith. The Christian is called to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. The Christian is, out of that calling to salvation, also called to lay down their life for the Lord. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, but it brings with it a call. This call includes hardship. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer that Jesus is your savior and Lord, you don't get to to pick and choose what he's called you to or where he has called you. He's called you to salvation and now he has called you to live for him. Romans chapter 8, 16 to 18 says this, but the spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided We suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Jesus himself says, and who does ever not whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But whoever receives you, receives me. He's talking to to God the Father now. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. We do, do not, we do not have a message of health and wealth and prosperity. That if you just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never, ever have anything in your life ever go wrong again. You'll always have lots of money. You'll always have lots of comfort. You'll always have lots of ease. And Paul knows this. That's, that's the backdrop, if you will, for, for what is going on here in Acts. Why would Paul be willing to do this? Because he knows Jesus is Lord and he knows that the call to believe in Jesus and to follow is not always easy. It is not always smooth. Now, there are a great many blessings that the Lord gives us in this life even. But sometimes there are things that He calls us to do that from a human perspective we look at and we say, why? Why would God let Paul go to Jerusalem? Why would God let Paul suffer? Doesn't God love Paul. Yeah, he does. God, the father, loved his son and called his son to suffer. God, the father, loves his children and calls his children to suffer and even to walk down hard paths. Look at verse. uh, Look, go back to chapter 20, verse 22 and 23. Paul knows this is coming. This isn't a surprise. Paul doesn't get to Jerusalem and go, Wow, I didn't see this coming. Paul doesn't get on his way to Jerusalem and and go, oh, man, I, I didn't know. Maybe maybe I should turn around now. He knew before he even left. Look at verses 22 and 23 back in chapter 20. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except That the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. What does he know is going to happen in Jerusalem? Hardship, affliction, oppression. He doesn't end up dying in Jerusalem. He ends up being taken to Rome and years later he ends up dying in Rome. And we don't have that recorded uh, in, in the book of Acts. But he knows to a limited degree what's coming, and that's hardship. And so we have the the return journey. Uh, Go to the next page, if you will. There's a um, little diagram there. This is the return journey that he's taking. And you've seen some of these names mentioned uh, in verses 1, 2, and 3. And when they had parted from them and set sail, we We came by a strait to Kos. So they leave Miletus, where he was last week in chapter 20. They go down to Kos next day to Rhodes, Rhodes, then to Patara, having found a ship, crossing to to Phoenicia, uh, which is the the coast there near where where Syria is, also the region of Phoenicia, down by Tyre. Uh, We went aboard and set sail. And when we had come uh, in sight of Cyprus, leaving it uh, on the left, uh, we sailed uh, to Syria and landed at Tyre where the ship was to unload its cargo. So they're getting down there and they're coming uh close uh to Jerusalem. As as we go on, we see that in in Tyre and you can move to the next uh slide there. In Tyre the spirit again speaks to Paul uh about Paul's failure and the people or excuse me about Paul's future and the people plead with him. Look at verses 4, 5 and 6. So he's on his way, he's going down, he's in Tyre, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed with them there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach we prayed." And said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. And I'd like to think if the Michael W. Smith song had existed in that day, they would have sang, and friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. Uh, we always sang that when I was a kid when people would leave church and go to different places and missionaries and, and that sort of thing. But you can, you can sense the emotion here. You can sense how, how tough this is for everyone involved. But how are we to understand then This phrase through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. In other words, the question is this, is Paul disobeying the Holy Spirit by going down to Jerusalem? Is the Holy Spirit saying, do not go? And Paul says, I am going to go. That is not how I think we are to understand uh, the passage and, and the context itself gives us the clue. First basic principle is the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict himself. The Holy Spirit has already compelled Paul to head uh, down there. And Paul knows what lies ahead because of what the Holy Spirit has said. So how are we to understand this? The second thing we know that we're not to think the words of the Holy Spirit were don't go is how Paul, or excuse me, how Luke illustrates this in verse 11 and 12. So he, he makes the general statement through the Holy Spirit, something's being said, and, and they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then he unpacks this again in verses 11 and 12 and explains it more specifically. And coming to us, he, this is, this is, um, uh, Agabus, it says he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, thus saith the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. Then look at verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. I think this is The same thing that is happening in verse 4. The language is just more packed. That through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go. But I think as you unpack it and as Luke is showing us in the context, the message of the Holy Spirit was not the words don't go. The message of the Holy Spirit was this is what is going to happen to you in Jerusalem. God was showing the disciples around Paul, the people with Paul, the other prophets, Paul is going to go down here and this is what's going to happen to him. And the people love Paul. The people know that Paul has a powerful ministry, that he is traveling around planting churches and if he goes to Rome, if he goes, excuse me, to Jerusalem, he is not going to be able to do that. He may even die. I'm sure they are thinking to themselves. And so they plead with Paul, don't go. In other words, they get the message from the Holy Spirit and their compassion and love causes them to respond in a certain way. But the message wasn't don't go and the message wasn't something that Paul was disobeying. But notice at the end of the passage in verse 14 how the people conclude when they can't urge Paul not to go. It says, since he could not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You see, if the Holy Spirit was saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, and then the people were pleading, Paul, the Holy Spirit said, don't go to Jerusalem, they would not shake their heads and say, well, let the will of the Lord be done. Because they know the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord in that situation would have been, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're saying God is revealing his will that Paul will go down there and be imprisoned. And out of that, they respond and they say, oh, Paul, please don't go down there. And when they can't persuade Paul. They say, okay, let God's will be done. If you're going to go, Paul, let God's will be done. He'll protect you even though your hands will be bound. What's the lesson we learn from this? What's the lesson we learn? The will of the Lord may be contrary to our emotions or feelings. It may be contrary to the wishes of others. But the will of the Lord will never be contrary to God's word. God may want you to do something that you don't feel like doing, that you're not all in emotional glee going, Yay! God may want you to do something that other people are telling you, Are you nuts? Do not go and do that. No sane person packs up their family, sells their belongings, and moves to Africa where there is no electricity to be a missionary. God will never tell you to do something. God will never give you an impression or a desire in your heart to do something that is contrary to his will. If you have a desire in your heart that's contrary to the word of God, it's not a desire from God. Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, Well, first, let me say this. God speaks through his written word. The Holy Spirit may lay convictions on us. He gives us wisdom. Sometimes he gives us deep burdens to do this or that, reach out to this or that person or group of people. Sometimes he will he will guide us through opening a door, putting an opportunity in our path. Sometimes we we, we will think and feel that God wants us to go and do something and, and he will close the door. Uh, the opportunity won't unfold. And we take that to be the guiding hand of God. But God will never lead you to do something that is not in his word. His word is written down. It is without error. This is the word of God. This is where God speaks. Where you have a command from God, no amount of feeling or guidance is going to lead you contrary to that. If the feeling and guidance is from God. Let me give some examples now. Um, you've probably seen this happen. You probably know people maybe this has even happened to. But, but a, a believer maybe starts dating an, an unbeliever. And they say, well, that's, that's okay. Uh, at least I'm not getting married. And then they fall in love. And then they, they fall so far in love, they say, I, I really need to marry this person because I'm in love. Even though Scripture commands that we aren't to be equal, unequally yoked in marriage with, a, with an unbeliever. But then the person will go on and say, you know, maybe they'll say, my case is different. Or, or God is leading me to do this. Or maybe they'll even say, God is speaking to me and he told me it was okay. God will never lead you and guide you in contrary ways to his word. God may also lead you contrary to what others feel. Many missionaries have gone places in the world where their, their friends and family were pleading with them not to go. Saying it's not safe. Saying it's foolish. I've heard occasional stories second and third hand of, of parents that didn't want their, their children to go into ministry because they won't be successful. They won't uh, make money. That, that Where will their security come from? But if God is leading that, that person to do those things, he's gifted them, he's showing them that his way, that that's where he wants them to go. He's, he's not given us anything in his word that is contrary to that. In fact, he gives us things like the Great Commission that tells us ministry and missionary work and all of those things are good things. Don't stand in the way of what God is calling someone to do. Let me just say, if you're a parent and your kids feel called to the by the lord to do something and it's not contrary to the word of god maybe they want to be a missionary maybe they want to uh, be a church planter maybe they want to be uh, a pastor if god is with them in this and the word of god is behind them the written word of god not subjective feelings trust your children To God, give them wisdom, give them guidance, give them cautions, ask them if they've thought about this or that, but trust the work and the will of God. Follow the Lord, but know that it is hard. So we ask ourselves when we come to something and we have decisions to make and we say, what does God want me to do in this situation? We first ask ourselves, what does God's word say? God won't lead you contrary to his word. And then ask yourself, am I called? Maybe do I have spiritual gifts? Has God given me a burden? Are there things in my life, maybe providence or or ways that God has allowed things to happen that that seem to indicate that, yeah, maybe I should go here or do this or use my talent in this way? We need to be really careful when it comes to following our feelings. If I was in Paul's shoes, and maybe Paul even felt like this, and certainly Paul's companions felt like this, their feelings were saying, don't go. But the Lord Jesus is the Lord. And he calls us to follow him. And he calls us to step out on faith and do tough things in his name. There was a book written not too long ago, well, maybe a decade ago now, uh, by some teenagers, and it was called Do Hard Things. It was a plea to other teens to to step out and take on challenges. But sometimes that's what the Christian life is like. Do hard things. Go down to Jerusalem, even though you're going to get in prison. Maybe God is calling you to be a missionary, to go to a remote place, to be a pastor, be a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you say, I could never work with kids. They scare me. I would be in prison if I went into the children's rooms. And they're all running around screaming as they tie you up. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's your fear. But maybe God is calling you to that. To be an elder, to be a deacon, to serve in some way. To go and share the gospel with a neighbor. God doesn't call us to a life that is smooth and easy all the time ask yourself this how can i serve him best with what he has given me the second thing is this this morning second point follow the lord knowing you must do the will of god you have to obey scripture you have to obey scripture follow god's will Follow the Lord, knowing you must do God's will. Notice then, as we move through this passage, Paul and his companions travel on and stay with Philip. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, verse seven and eight, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, uh, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. One of the seven is a reference to Acts chapter six. In Acts chapter six, the disciples, uh, the twelve apostles were preaching the word and there were some widows that were missing out on on the food. They weren't being taken care of. And, and the apostles said, we need to to focus on preaching the word. Let's take seven men and, and essentially they make them deacons. Well, Philip was one of the seven. But Philip is also known as an evangelist. He's the guy that goes down on the road and meets the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that story where he shares the gospel and, and he comes along, the eunuch who's riding in the chariot, bumping along there, reading the scroll of Isaiah. And and the eunuch goes, or Philip asks, do you know what you're reading? And and the eunuch says, how can I know unless someone explains it to me? And, and the, Philip goes, well, interesting you should say that. I can explain this to you. And he goes on and explains who Jesus is. Philip is that evangelist here. I can identify with Philip. Philip is a man with four daughters. Look at verse nine. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Notice this. He has four unmarried daughters in the life of the church who prophesy. Now in Acts chapter two, it says that in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit. This is Peter actually quoting Joel in Joel from the Old Testament. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Two things. One, as the scriptures are uh, written, uh, as the scriptures are written, written down, the ministry of prophecy is brought to fulfillment. This is before they had all of the word of God written, that God provides prophets. And so, too, in the early days of the church, the prophets are those who who build the foundation, if you will, on Jesus Christ. You know how when you build a house and the church, all of the church is like a house. And scripture says that Jesus is the cornerstone. And if you build houses from the cornerstones, you lay the footers foundation. Well, What does scripture say? That the household of God in Ephesians 20 or chapter two, verse 20 says it is, quote, built on the foundation of the prof- apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole structure is the church down through the ages. And when did we have the apostles and the prophets? At the bottom. Around the time that Jesus died. So we could hear the word of God. So that the word of God could be preached with authority. And then the apostles and the prophets could write it down in the pages of scripture. So that we would know without fail that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. We have something authoritative to appeal to. Eyewitnesses and then apostles and prophets who wrote these things down. For whatever the reason, it was God's will that these four daughters would both be single and use their spiritual gift at this time in their singlehood. I don't know if they ever got married or not. Scripture doesn't tell us, but where however old they were, they were single women in the life of the church and they had a spiritual gift of prophecy. There's no indication that prophecy was just a man's gift. There's no indication that that the women in in the church uh, were not allowed to use this gift. Quite the contrary, they were using this gift. There's no indication in the life of the early church that women participating in the church only had value as mothers uh, or as married women. So without diminishing the role of motherhood or the family, it is not as if a woman is only important or can only serve the Lord if she marries or becomes a mom. Paul even says that singlehood is a gift in the book of First Corinthians, chapter seven. These women were using their gifts in the church. And really, it's just kind of a, a side note in this passage. But you ask yourself, why is it there? Why is it there? These women were recognized in the church as prophets. And the Holy Spirit felt it was worthwhile to put that in there. Four unmarried daughters serving in the church. And nobody in the church was saying, well, you know, ladies, you really ought to get married because if you don't get married, you can't really serve God with your life. You really ought to have kids because that's what ladies need to do. I don't want to minimize motherhood for a second, particularly in a culture that that abhors motherhood. But at the same time that we raise motherhood up, we also say the highest calling of any woman anywhere is to serve the Lord wherever God has put her. Then we have Agabus, the prophet. He comes and prophesies and he actually takes Paul's belt and and wraps up the hand. I think if I was Paul here, I'd be tempted to be like, oh, no, that wasn't my belt. I was just borrowing that. Because he says, whoever's belt this is, is going to go down to Jerusalem. Thus saith the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, notice it doesn't say specifically that Paul is going to die in Jerusalem. He doesn't die in Jerusalem. But that would certainly be the fear with what they're being told here. You think of how Jesus is delivered over to the scribes and the Pharisees and delivered over to the Gentiles, and then they crucify him. Paul will get taken to Rome, as I mentioned earlier, and later die. But You can see why it's scary. You can see why the fear is here. But Paul says, I am willing to go. Look at verse 12. uh, um, Yeah, look at verse 12. When they heard this, we, the people there, urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 13, Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? You can, you can imagine what this, this looks like, okay? They, they are crying. Uh, they are pleading. This was not an unemotional, you know, hey, Paul, you better not go down there. Let me give you ten reasons why you shouldn't. This was, there were, there were tears coming out. And, and Paul loves these people. And, and you know how it is with with people that you love sometimes when when they start crying, you start crying. Uh, when my, when my daughters start crying, sometimes, man, it just you know, you start getting teary eyed. And maybe it has nothing to do with you, but you feel bad because your kids are crying. Paul bonded to these people with deep Christian love. You, you can imagine how it aches and breaks his heart that he's. Putting them through such sorrow, even though this is the will of God, let me suggest to you guys, this is how a church should be in terms of its connectedness. The scriptures say that we should weep with those who are weeping. We should rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But there should be such love in our body, such love amongst brothers and sisters in Christ that we really care for people. Do we pray for our missionaries? Do we pray for Kim Nob, who's out in Tanzania? Uh, Maybe we don't cry all the time over her. But but do we have a burden that we pray that God would keep her safe there? Because we're one in the body of Christ. Notice what Paul says then. He says, for I am ready Not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, verse 17, Paul says, for I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, for I am glad and rejoice with all of you drink offerings. You you take them and you pour them over the altar. and, And Paul is saying, I'm I'm poured out like a drink offering. And guess what? When you have water or juice or wine or something in a cup, you can pour it all out. What is Paul saying? He is is being poured out. And there's going to come a day where there's that last drip in the cup and it's being shaken out. He is giving all that he has for the church, for its ministry, because he's following the Lord. And it may mean his death. In fact, when Paul was called, Ananias, the one who's supposed to go and, and remove the blindness from Paul's eyes, Ananias is told by the Lord. He says, You know, go and go and heal him. Ananias says, Yeah, but but God, he, he persecutes Christians. Are you are you sure you got the right guy here that I'm supposed to heal? Paul, you know, God God tells him, Yes, he's a chosen instrument, and then he says this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Consider Jeremiah in the Old Testament as an illustration. Jeremiah is told he's going to be given a ministry. And he's told that God will make him a wall. A fortified city. Against the people of Israel. Listen to what God says to Jeremiah. Behold, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you because I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. What is God saying to Jeremiah? You're not going to have a big fancy ministry where, where tons of people come and are repenting and turning and, and it's full of excitement and joy. He's saying you're going to have people literally fighting against you. They throw him in cistern, in, in a bottom of a well. God doesn't promise you and I that when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, And that when we follow Him, everything will go smooth. God doesn't promise that that our church will be the biggest on the block. That we will have everyone flocking in here. And that we can be better than everybody else. God calls us to follow Him. And sometimes that following Him leads us to suffer. And many, many times that means you don't become great in the eyes of the world. It often means you don't have the biggest symbol of statuses that the world lifts up. It often means that you look pretty stupid. You do things that the world would think is dumb. People even think it's dumb to get up early on a Sunday morning. And come hear a guy talk for 45 minutes. How boring is that, they tell you. Why do you give money to the church? What has the church ever done for you? Think of how much more you could have in your life if you kept it for yourself. Why do you keep trying to love that person that has hated you and had nothing but spite for you? The person tells you, let him go. You don't owe them anything. But you're a Christian. And a Christian is called to follow the Lord. And if need be to lay down our life for the Lord. Ask yourself this. What am I willing to do for the name of the Lord Jesus? Can you say this morning, I'm ready Where does your heart maybe need to be prepared? Maybe there's something where where God's been kind of laying a burden on you to go and do this. And you've just kind of been pushing it off, saying, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. No, no, that's 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 crazy. But somehow, you know. And it's not against the word of God. So somehow, you know, that that burden came from God. And God is calling you to at least test the waters and trust him and step out in faith. What are the gifts that God has given me? How am I using them? What are the situations that God has put in my life now where I can serve him? Maybe he hasn't called you to go down to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm not a prophet, so I'm not going to take out anybody's belt today and, you know, bind your hands and say tomorrow when you go into work, your your hands are going to be bound like this. Nothing like that at all. But God does call us like Paul was called for the name of the Lord to do things for him. You know what honors God? It's not the big fancy things. It's the faithfulness in the little things where God has put you. How can you be faithful? What is he calling you to do? What would he have for you? And are you willing What would I do for the name of the Lord Jesus? Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. Maybe you have something in store for each one of us here today. You know what it is. But you're just calling us to trust you, to walk day by day by faith, to be open to your leading, to be obedient to the clear commands in Scripture. And then trust your guiding hand, the the doors of providence that you open and close the opportunities that you bring before us that just appear to be, quote unquote, accidents. But you use them. Help us to follow you each and every day of our life to yield to you. Oh, Lord, the natural bent of our heart is not to yield to you, but you have put your spirit there and your spirit cultivates the graces of God. We ask that you would do this in our hearts and our lives. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to.